So uh, a couple of weeks back, we began a Sunday school class on prayer, uh, specifically on Pauline prayer. So we looked at Paul's letters in the New Testament. And uh, from that, we found what I think are riches of wisdom and guidance to help us in our prayer life. Uh, And being that the prayers that we looked at, Paul's prayers, are in the canon of Scripture, and I would say that they're the best guide for our own prayers or helping us to formulate our prayers. And why? And the reason why is because the Holy Spirit inspired it, right? It's in the canon of Scripture. And, and part of this Sunday school class is to look at not only the content of Pauline prayers, thank you, but how the prayers are framed and also to observe what were the petitions that were in Paul's heart as he prayed. And you'll see that Paul was a man that walked by the guidance of the Spirit of God in a special way. And therefore, I would say that his prayers are trustworthy and exemplary for us to observe and dissect. And as we go through this class, you should ask yourself, even while you hear me teach it, as we go through the Pauline prayers, ask yourself, why did he pray for that specific thing, right? Or why don't I normally pray for those kinds of things? And uh, it should be an opportunity to examine your own prayers as we look at Paul's prayers. One of the benefits to this study that I hope you'd gain is an opportunity to examine your own prayers, as I mentioned, and, and also an opportunity to examine your own heart as you go before the Lord. Another benefit would be that you would gain practical wisdom on how to perform the prayers in your own private life and, and how to discipline your own life to have prayer be more of a part of your daily walk. And I also hope to share wisdom on how to approach leading a public prayer. Now, some of you dread the thought of praying in front of people, but we're going to talk about some wisdom related to that. Uh, the last class that we had, um, I did an introduction to the series, and I also covered a few important practical points. Um, but I presented a theology of prayer, and so I, I recommend that you listen to that class. Uh, it, it's on our church website. If you look under Sunday School Audio, you'll see the audio there. Uh, but today I'm going to review some of that, and then I'm also going to bring some fresh new material as well. Um, I'll start by saying that prayer is a practice that demonstrates our dependency upon God. I'll repeat that. Prayer is a practice that demonstrates our dependency on God. And we have to ask ourselves, are we truly dependent upon God? The Christian is one who recognizes that they are not, in fact, in full control. Right? As opposed to the world. The world lives as if God doesn't exist, which then means that their whole life, according to their mind, the way that they think, their whole life, their future, their destiny is all dependent upon luck, chance, the things that they do, their investments, the power is in their hands. And we know that's false, right? Christians are awakened to the truth that that's not true. That God is whom we are fully dependent upon. And I mentioned in the last class that as a Christian, I wonder about the psychology of the unbeliever. How is it that an unbeliever lives with the assumption that everything is either based on chance or luck or worse? That their faith depends only upon their actions. And me personally, I think the weight of that is crushing. I couldn't live without being able to go before God and asking him for help and and guidance. And the reality is that there are things that are completely out of our control that we have to depend on God. 
I mentioned the first thing uh, that comes to mind is being a parent. Uh, some of us are parents, um, and for anyone who's a parent, think about the moments, the moments when you were not looking, right? And the child could have ran into the street while the cars were passing. I think about the time when your child got hurt physically, but you knew that he missed the table by an inch, and he could have hit his head uh, if he would have been an inch to the left. How often do we hear about news and murders and, and, and people who are victims of horrific crimes? And often the news reports that we hear, you know, leave us devastated. We don't know what to do. Like, oh, wow, there was a shooting in the state over here somewhere in the U.S. Or, or in that movie theater. And we feel scared that the world is getting worse. Yet we ought to ask ourselves every time we see that, why wasn't I murdered, right? Why wasn't I in that theater? Or why didn't they come to this theater when I was there that day? Then as much as we can try to set up, set up a safe environment, in the end of the day, we're really at the mercy of God. And, a part, and part of the reason why unbelievers are unbelievers is that they hate the idea that they don't have full control. That's one of the things that are not appealing to them about this whole God situation. They don't want to follow a God because they prefer to have full control over their lives. And that means full control over their moral decisions, full control over um, how they want to live their life. And that also means full, full control uh, on how they, on their journey to success or lack thereof. And unbelievers can't handle leaving their life in the hands of a God that personally they refuse to seek after. And the same goes with our finances. Our finances are also in the hands of God. Our health is in the hands of God. Our daily needs really depend on God. We're utterly dependent on him. And the scripture says that only a fool lives pretending that God isn't behind all that happens, right? We read in Proverbs 19:21, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. So how does this help us develop a theology of prayer? I say two things. Number one, that even though the world rejects the idea that we are utterly dependent on the provision of God, interestingly, God still continues to provide for those who don't believe him. Isn't that interesting? The people who reject God, God still gives them food. God still gives them a bathroom. God still gives them a home. God still gives them family and blessings. God continues to provide to people who hate him. We see in Matthew 5, 45. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. And so when this verse talks about God providing sun and rain, it's another way of saying that God provides growing crops for food and again, just continues to provide for good people, but also bad people. And then point two is that God, God's common grace towards all man, what that does is it places a reasonable obligation on all people universally, not just religious folks, but every single person in this world, God places an obligation to pray to him. Right? Every single person that you've seen in this planet, that exists in this planet, young and old, they have an obligation to come before God and pray to him and give him his due praise. That's an obligation, whether they believe or not. 
And it's for that reason that God continues to bless people even if they don't believe him. No one is exempt from this obligation. This is clear, even in the Reformed Confessions, when uh, when it says prayer with thanksgiving, being one part of natural worship, is by God required of all men. And this is based on a few passages in Scripture, one of them being Psalm 65, verse 2, where it says, O you who hear prayer, you shall all flesh come. Obligation that every flesh owes God prayer. Now, considering the reality that we are all utterly dependent upon God, what does it mean for us as believers, right, to neglect prayer, right? We've been given the revelation from God, We've been saved. We've been given the scriptures. What does it mean for us? We talked about unbelievers, right? There's an obligation there. What does it mean about it for, for us as Christians? Why is it that prayer is so easily neglected even, even for us? The very practice of coming before the Lord and relying upon him as needy children is a, is a practice that we often struggle the most with. What does it say when we neglect prayer? Well, have we become like the unbeliever who takes advantage of God's common grace? Even as we eat our food on the dinner table, we pretend that we provided this for ourselves? There was a video uh, by a famous celebrity, I'm not going to say his name, (laughs) uh, at some awards ceremony uh, where he goes up to the podium, right? And as he approaches the microphone and he begins to give his acceptance speech for for the award, At some point, he says, I want to take this opportunity to thank me. I want to take this opportunity to thank me. He says, I want to thank me for believing in me. I want to thank me for doing all this hard work. I want to thank me for having no days off. I want to thank me for never quitting. I want to thank me for always being a giver and trying to give more than I receive. I want to thank me for trying to do more right than wrong. I want to thank me for just being me all the time. (laughs) (laughs) And even while he was saying this speech, just like you guys did right now, the audience there began to laugh, but they began to applaud. It was funny. It was exciting. Wow, he thanks himself. Forget everyone else. But think about that for a second. Um, why is that comical? I mean, we laughed, but they laughed too. Why was that comical? And the reason why people laugh and applauded was because this was out of the ordinary, right? It's, it's, almost, it's almost natural law for gratitude and thanksgiving to be dedicated to someone else that's not you. <laughs> Isn't that true? It's, if you're going to thank someone or thank anything, it's usually not yourself. It's like having Thanksgiving Day celebration with turkey and everything and dedicating the Thanksgiving dinner to yourself. (laughs) And everyone around the table shares, right? We all hold hands and we're about to pray to ourselves. We hold hands and we have the dinner table in the uh, the middle. And I go, uh, as a host, I say, okay, let's go around the table. Everyone say what they're thankful for. And they all start saying how thankful they are for being attractive and thankful for all for being smart. And thankful for for being so successful because of all the things that they did. That's, that would be an interesting Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> um, now, to be fair, uh, at some point, this celebrity that I mentioned, he does mention God at some point. Thank you, God. You know, 
But I, th I still think his speech is a great example of how unnatural and, more importantly, how irrational it is to do what he did. And yet, in a lot of ways, we all do the same thing. I want to thank myself for doing all this good stuff. We do the same thing. We just don't say it. And so, you know that day that you worked really hard and you say, you know what? I worked hard. I'm going to go celebrate tonight. I'm going to buy me a bottle. I'm going to hang out in the club. And, you know, you, you, you're celebrating yourself <laughs> as opposed to stopping for a moment and giving thanks to the Lord. You know, sometimes I, I would have to do that. After work, a long, hard day, I'd go to the bathroom. After everyone left my office, I'm shutting the office down. I'd go to the bathroom. And tried to humble my heart a bit and remind myself that I got through this day and I got through this day by the grace of God, and by the grace of God alone. Pray, say thank you, Lord, that in this time of work, it wasn't my skill, it wasn't the way my parents raised me, although you did use that. Your hand was behind it all. I'm able to feed my family, provide for my family. I'm able to have food on the plate for my kids. All these great things. Thank you, Lord. It's important to do that. But we often do the opposite. We do what the celebrity here um, does, and, and we need to guard ourselves from that. <clears throat> we fail to acknowledge our utter dependency on God. Prayer is the test to, it, to this. We ought to ask ourselves, how is our prayer life? And as we neglect prayer, both individually and also corporately, we become practical atheists. That's what it is become practical atheists. And our practice only proves the real and true state of our spiritual lives. You know, if we don't look at prayer as a measure to see how you're doing spiritually, you ought to. You ought to look and say, I barely pray. I struggle with prayer. I, sometimes I pray once a week. What that essentially means is that you go through the day pretending like God is not there, like an atheist, you know? It proves the real and true state of our spiritual lives. And so this leaves us with the question, what exactly is prayer? And if you were to examine prayer through the Bible, you would see that prayer actually began at the time of the birth of Enosh, one of Adam and Eve's later kids. Some, had, some have argued that prayer began in the beginning of creation with Adam and Eve uh, but in the garden. Uh, but the text doesn't present itself this way. It's described using normal language of conversation when Adam and Eve were in the garden talking to God. It was more like natural language. It's only when we come to the end of Genesis 4 that we find anything that looks like prayer. Genesis 4.26 says, At the time, people began to, and here it is, call upon the name of the Lord. People began to call upon the name of the Lord. That was a voluntary seeking after uh, Pursuing God, seeking after him, praying to him, uh, calling upon his name so that he would answer them. We see more of this happen after that. Genesis 12, verses 7 through 8. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And from there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. In other words, he prayed. So in summary, what you see prayer to be, at least in the Old Testament, is this act of asking God to deliver on his covenantal promises. 
And as the story goes on, specifically to rescue and give life to his covenant people. So the idea is people are responding to God based on his promises, based on his revelation. There's a response from his creatures, right? Please fulfill what you've, what you've said you would fulfill. God, you are a God that rescues, that saves. Please do that, that sort of thing. In the major and minor prophets, the privilege of calling upon the name of Yahweh is at some point taken away. That privilege is taken away. It's withdrawn because of sin. But beyond this judgment lies this hope that one day will come a time when everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. See, again, you see that theme throughout Scripture, the calling upon the name of the Lord. We see that prayer is uh, predicated on God's covenant initiative, right? This is to say that even though it's an obligation for all men to call upon Yahweh, like I mentioned before, prayer is required by all men. It is only acceptable prayer made possible by the gospel that God receives as acceptable prayer. This means that all acceptable prayer, in a sense, is a gospel prayer, even in the Old Testament. Prayer that was made by faith in the God who would save, right? In the promised seed. It's calling upon the name of Yahweh, who is the God of the covenant, the God of salvation. This is, consist- this is the consistent focus of prayer throughout the Old Testament. And then you have the Psalms. You open up to the book of Psalms. I'm reading the Psalter as a book of prayer. We see that, that, that prayer in the Psalms is a little bit more complicated and, and, and can be more than merely calling upon Yahweh to come through on his promises. But it's definitely not less than that, right? It's, that's the core foundation of prayer, calling upon God. And the Psalms, you see uh, different expressions of that. Um, some Psalms have prayers that sound like complaints to God, cries to God. Uh, and so they take upon different forms, like prayers of adoration, prayers of confession, intercessory prayers, prayers of supplication. All of that without disconnecting its primary purpose of calling upon God to fulfill his will, to, for his will to be done. So that, that again, is the, uh, is the, uh, is the point of, of prayer. So from this, we can define prayer like this, that although there are many kinds of prayers, the heart of it all is that it is a calling out to God to fulfill what he promised. And when we engage in prayer, what we're doing there is we're seeking to align our wills with the will of God. At the moment of prayer, what we're doing is we're coming before the throne of God, causing us, and that causing us to deny ourselves, uh, to pursue what pleases God. A good example of this is found in Philippians 4, 6 through 7. Notice what, what's happening here. It says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So this passage begins with an anxious person. But God is telling us that if you're anxious, pray. Pray and bring supplication with thanksgiving. Let those requests be made known to God. And when you do that, something happens in return. And again, this goes with the theme of you you come before the Lord so that your will would be adjusted to his and not the other way around. It's not God, you know, 
can you forget your plan and do my plan? No. <laughs> you know, it's, Father, adjust my heart, adjust my will. Let me, let me align to your will. Which um, the Spirit helps us to do that. The Spirit um, intercedes for us, as we'll, as we'll see later on. Helps us to do that. The Word of God helps us to do that. And when we come before the Lord, our hearts are aligned to His will, which makes the prayers effectual. <clears throat> Here we see that kind of prayer. We are commanded to let our requests be made known to God as a way to exchange our anxieties for a profound peace from God that would guard our hearts and minds in Christ. And, and that alone makes me want to pray even more. And we live in an anxious time, a time of anxiety. Coming before the Lord uh, to change our own hearts um, is an important uh, benefit for the Christian. Uh, all more reason to seek out prayer. Now, moving along, um, I want to discuss the disciplines needed for prayer. And I want to give you at least seven practical points to help guard you from neglecting it. And on the handout, you'll see those seven points. The first one, I think, is the theology of prayer, which we just went through by way of review. Um, now we'll get into seven points that I think will help you and guard you from neglecting prayer. Um, I, the, the previous uh, Sunday school, I think I covered like three of these. So I'm going to go through those pretty quickly so that we can benefit on the new fresh stuff. So let's start with the first point. The first point is planning. Planning. <clears throat> a lot of prayer is not done because we do not plan to pray. And no one ever drifts into a spiritual life. You don't just end up there. Um, we don't just drift into disciplines out of nowhere. We won't grow in prayer unless we actually plan to pray. This means that we should consistently, um, excuse me, we should consciously set aside time to do nothing but pray. In other words, there should be a time in, in your day where you say, this is actually locked in. Sorry, I, I, can't, I can't go to that restaurant at this time. I'm going to pray. This is my prayer time. Now, not, I don't mean that in a legalistic way, um, but it's just an example. Uh, to lock in prayer and don't do anything else is the point. Uh, part, part of this is that we have to fight against the modern notion that spontaneity equals true sincerity. We live in a culture today that spontaneity is elevated. Um, we have Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, whatever else, cat, something. All these social media things, really uh, it, what it tries to do is it put out there in our culture um, spontaneity as, as a high virtue, a high, they, they value it highly. Um, this is not to say that being spontaneous is completely wrong but I think we overvalue spontaneity and oftentimes we equate it with true sincerity and so the, the point of that is to say that if you plan to pray it doesn't mean that you're religious uh, in the bad sense of the term it doesn't mean that you um, are ritualistic by setting aside a time of prayer Sort of like how the, the Muslims do, where they pray certain times throughout the day. It doesn't mean that. It simply means that you want to plan this time so that you spend time with God. 
these ideas often seep into the church too often, the idea that being spontaneous equals true sincerity. But being disciplined and having a set time for daily prayer even is often labeled as legalistic. Some Christians even prize themselves for the fact that they don't do that. They feel that it serves as a sign of sincerity that they don't have a a time of prayer. They just go throughout their day. Um, But in all honesty, I think it just serves as a sign of being sincerely undisciplined. And as a result, you have Christians repeatedly saying that they really need to work harder on prayer, and that ends up being their whole life's story, and they never get around to do it. So setting time for prayer ensures that these vague desires for prayer are concretized in, in a real, regular practice. Here's some, here's some verses that suggest that Paul himself set aside specific times of prayer, and Jesus as well. Uh, Romans 1.10 says, Always in my prayers, my prayers, asking that somehow by, the, by God's will I may now at, le- at last succeed in coming to you. And then Ephesians 1.16, I do not cease to give thanks to you, remembering you in my prayers. 1 Thessalonians 1.2, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. So you have corporate and then you have private and then Luke 5.16, this, um, this is Jesus here, says, But he, Jesus, <clears throat> would withdraw to desolate places and pray. So he would actually get away from people. And I know oftentimes, especially in, in the modern church today, um, there's been a strong emphasis on community. And I think that that's important because for a long time there was this um, prioritizing of being isolated and being, or, or, you know, some people took upon that idea of being sort of a lone ranger Christian, me and God alone. And so because of that flaw, the church has responded by saying, you know, community is important. The God that we serve requires us to come together corporately and, and do our practices corporately and worship corporately, not just you individually. That's important. But I think there's also an overreaction to that, too. That there needs to be, according to what I see in Scripture, a time where you isolate yourself and you come before the Lord in true confession, with, with real prayer, with, with time dedicated to being alone with God, um, so that you would be uh, transformed by these prayers. <clears throat> if we plan wisely, it would ensure that we devote ourselves to prayer more often, even for brief periods. Um, I want to also mention this. Uh, Throughout history, many Christians have devoted themselves to praying the hours of the divine office or the the liturgy of the hours. Um, Puritans would devote morning and evening. Um, And we see, just kind of in that same train of thought, we see in Scripture that David and Daniel devoted three times a day for prayer. I'll bring out some of the passages. Psalm 55, 17. Look what it says there. I'll I'll let you guys turn there. I think it's important. Psalm 55, 17. Did someone read that? So, 
You have evening, morning, and noon. I utter my complaint and moan, and he hears my voice. Let's look at another passage. Daniel 6, verse 10. Someone get that? If you get it, you can just read out loud. Thank you. So it says here, he got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had previously, or as he had done previously. Now, this is not to say that three is the magical number. What it is to say is that there is a pattern there, that the saints would have these set times. And I think three is a good number, to be honest with you. You have the morning, you have some point in the middle of the day, and then you end your day with God. Uh, these set times of prayer, I think, would help to create a healthy habit of prayer in your life and ensure you that you would always be walking in the way that what they call quorum Deo, living before the face of God. And if we intend to change our habits, this would be a good place to start. And the benefit of keeping short accounts with God is that it, ins- it, it ensures us that we would acknowledge God in all of our ways throughout the day. I mean, I think it's just a great practice. That, you know, what happens when you don't pray, you know, you wake up with God and then by noon you're carnal and by at the end of the day you curse the day of your birth. By 10 minutes on the fourth <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> I wouldn't even say by noon. I'd say by 10. By 10 I'm already cursing the day. So having those set times would keep you before God. I mean, it's, it's that simple. Um, I, I've already taken upon this practice wake up in the morning, doesn't mean I, I have two hours, you know, I'm not waking up two hours before the time I have to be there, um, but maybe 30 minutes or something where I get up and I'm having my breakfast alone, have the word open, I'm not exegeting the text necessarily, I just have a verse or something, or, or maybe a video or something that would stir my heart towards the Lord, and I would at least spend a couple of minutes to pray, that's it. Asking the Lord, Father, be with me this morning, I'm going to work, I need strength. I can't do this on my own. Help me to walk in your ways. Help me to be excited and motivated uh, to, to do all things for your glory. Everything I do. Some point in the middle of the day of my lunch break, I just go into my car. Or sometimes I go into the bathroom. I turn the lights off so no one thinks I'm there. And, and I'm just there, just praying. And I ask the Lord, Father, middle of the day, thank you for sustaining me this far. Help me, push me. Motivate me, help me to walk in holiness. And then by the end of the day before I I go to sleep, thank the Lord for all that He's given. Help me to start a new day tomorrow. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. And those, those specific times are helpful because if you think about how you eat, right? We have breakfast, lunch, and dinner. At least I, I have breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I have more than that. 
Uh, but breakfast, lunch, and dinner are set times. I don't negotiate that. But, but in the middle of that, I mean, I don't know about you, but I have my snack, right? So I have my breakfast, and then at some point I go get a donut. Um, then you have your lunch, right? And then between that, you get another donut. <laughs> and then before dinner, you've, you've you had your set times to eat. But in between the meals, you know, you're keeping your blood sugar up, whether it's drinking water or having a snack, whatever it is to sustain you from each point. But having those three markers there would assure me that, you know, that prayer is happening in my day. So, again, not, this is not uh, an attempt to be legalistic at all. It's just to encourage you to have set times in the day. Uh, moving along. Uh, point number two. Hopefully I get through seven, but I'll, get through this, I'll go through this quickly. Um, the second point is to adopt practical ways to avoid or impede mental drift. Um, things you can do when you're praying and your mind starts to wander. Um, one, one, way to do, one way to help your mind you know, be focused is to vocalize your prayers, say them out loud. Um, finding an isolated pl- a place to pray, I think, is helpful for that too as well. Um, what I do personally is to pray over scripture. So have the Bible there. That way there's more interaction with, with your physical body. Uh, these are all good ways to help you from mental drift. Um, some people write down their prayers. That's not, that's not wrong. It doesn't mean it's less sincere. But writing it down helps you to focus and know exactly what you're praying about. Yeah, but... Dear old Dr. Adrian Rogers. Yeah. Also, jot down your mental distractions because I'm to the age that if I don't do it now, I'll forget it. So I sit down and pray and I, oh, I need to take that garbage. Oh, I need <laughs> yeah. to pay the, the cable bill, whatever. And, and, and all of a sudden you're distracted. Well, have a big pen, piece yes. of paper, write down your to-do list because yep. Satan's going to want to distract you, yep. scatter you. Put it down. Okay, now I will deal with you later. Yeah. Now I can go back to my... Exactly. That's a great, uh, great practical advice. Yeah. Let's look at the third point. The third point is that in various periods of your life, you should develop, if possible, a prayer partnership with others. Um, if you're married, your spouse is a great partner. Just praying with someone else and not just you, you, you. Um, husbands... Um, should cultivate that kind of thing in their house. Uh, Praying with brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, Being able to hear prayer modeled as well um, helps uh, keeping a a healthy um, prayer form, if you will. Sometimes small groups, two or three um, people coming together. Uh, I'm looking at Acts 1.14 where it says, these all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer. Acts 1.14. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer. So coming together with other people, hearing their prayers, sharing burdens with one another as you pray is, is healthy. The fourth point is to choose models, men or women, seasoned in the faith, and listen carefully to how they pray. It could be your pastor or a mature brother or sister in Christ whose prayers bless and encourage you towards communion with God. The fifth point, the fifth point is to develop a system for your prayer, or a prayer list, rather. 
Uh, some people like using a prayer journal or a folder with prayer requests from other people who, who have requests. A prayer calendar or an app on your phone. Um, some people like to use a church membership directory. I think that's a great tool. I personally like to list specific people and write it down in my phone notebook. Um, the people that I really want to pray for, um, I write it down and I'll go through it at least once a week. Um, the list includes friends, church members, my wife, uh, praying for each one of my kids. You know, if just do it. Just write it down and, and make it a regular routine. Uh, don't just trust your memory to randomly remind you, by the way. Uh, number six. The sixth point is that when bringing a petition, specifically a, a prayer that is petition, right? When you ask, you're asking God for something. Consider combining praise, combining confession, intercession when you pray. But most importantly, consider tying your request with Scripture, or at least allowing Scripture to inform your prayer. Why is this important? Well, first of all, we should remind ourselves that there is a scriptural command to let our requests be made known to God. We see that in Philippians 4, 6. So we should never feel bad when we do have petitions. Yet oftentimes we feel guilty to pray because on the one hand, we feel that it's inappropriate to ask God for things. And we tell ourselves, who are we to make these insignificant requests to, the, to God Almighty? He's sovereign. He doesn't need our counsel. That's one extreme. The other extreme is to assume that petition prayers are everything. And this is important. For example, there are people who believe that if people die and go to hell, it's because you or I or someone out there neglected to pray. These extremes are honestly reductionistic um, in their treatment of God. Uh, we, we have to remember that the Bible pictures God as both utterly sovereign and also as a prayer hearing and prayer answering God. Okay, So we have to learn how to perceive this and how to act on these simultaneous truths. And if we don't, our prayers will begin to resemble the prayers of those faith traditions that deny the sovereignty of God, right? Our prayer, our praying would likely be tossed back and forth between fatalism, right? Never asking God for anything and a, a, a desperation that only reveals a complete lack of trust in God or the God who is sovereign. So when, when we, the, the way that we feel about prayer has to match the character of God. If there, is a, if there is an imbalanced desperation, that if, if we don't pray, something's not going to happen, then we're forgetting about the sovereignty of God. On the contrary, if we never pray, we get into this fatal, fatalism um, that in the end is really just um, disobedience, right? If praying shows our dependency on God, we must also show that God himself is dependable. Uh, we then are able to pray to God on the one hand with specific petitions, but also on the other hand with a heart that above all desires that his will be done. And this is why praise, confession, and intercession should fill our prayers. Uh, there is such thing as praying wrongly. James 4.3 says, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And so it's important that scripture inform our, um, the way that we approach God. The seventh point is that we should work on our public prayers. Although when we pray, we pray to God, and what is first 
what is first of all most important is that when we pray, especially publicly, that God is pleased. Therefore, we shouldn't pray with the fear of man. However, we must not forget that when we pray publicly, it's a public prayer in which you go before the Lord while others are silent listening to you. And you're leading the minds and the spirits of the listeners around you when you go before God. Therefore, we should take the privilege and the responsibility of praying in public seriously. And we should seek to be effective models for other people. If you lead in prayer, whether it's over dinner or something like that, or even here when we join together for flock, if you're leading in some sort of public prayer, consider everyone in the room, right? Are you loud enough for everyone to be led by your words? Or do you mumble your prayer as if you're, you're the only one in the room with God? Consider projecting your voice. And as much as you can, be clear. Another good thing is to help your listeners know when you started and when you ended your prayer. I, I smile <laughs> because many, many of us can testify to times in a prayer circle, right? We're all holding hands. Oh, we don't do that. We don't do that here. I forgot. Um, when we're all in a prayer circle and someone volunteers to pray and they end their prayer in, in an awkward point <laughs> and no one was able to discern when the prayer was done. And so everyone else's eyes are still closed and no one can tell. If the person just paused because they're in awe of God's goodness. Or they just died. <laughs> or they just died. <laughs> um, so we, we, need, we, we, we need a hint, right? Um, so when, you have, uh, when, when you're in a circle or when you're praying in the public, good, uh, try, to, try to help others, other people be led in that prayer. Um, you're, you're, there's a responsibility there in a sense. Um, a good way, I like to do it, it's not a rule necessarily, there's nowhere in scripture that says this is how you ought to end your prayers, but a good way is to end in Jesus' name. Um, again, it's not a, a biblical rule, it's just a good idea. Uh, a couple of considerations, and I'll, I'll, I'm almost done here. Are you too casual before God when you pray? Like two friends hanging out? Consider the consequences of those who listen and how it's affecting their conscience. Lead them to God with all reverence. As it says in Leviticus 10.3, the Lord spoke saying, by those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all people, I will be honored. And what does that mean? This means that when we pray, we are not to offer God profanity. And I'm not talking about cuss words. I'm referring to profane forms of prayer that are absolutely unauthorized by God. And some of these forms may have the appearance of wisdom, but they are no value in stopping the indulgences of the flesh, the flesh which craves for self-made religion. And then finally, pray until you pray. This last point, pray until you pray, is an old Puritan advice. Some have taken this to mean that we ought to be persistent in our prayers. And we do see a kind of persisting of prayer in Scripture. We remember that Elijah prayed for rain seven times before the first cloud appeared in the sky. And we also see that Jesus taught in Luke 11 that if we ask, it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open for you. For everyone who asks, receives, etc., etc. It's important that we understand this a little bit better. Are the scriptures teaching that we ought to chant words and phrases over and over again before God? Are we to speak in repetitive patterns and rhythms as the pagans do when they recite their mantras to 
who knows whose spirit? In Matthew 6, 7 through 8, Jesus says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. So if that's the case, what does it mean that Elijah prayed seven times for something? Or that Jesus asked us to seek and we'd find? Well, there is some level of persistence in those examples. But more than anything, we learn from this that Christians should pray long enough and honestly enough at a single session to get past the feeling of formalism and unreality that often is present when we pray quickly and mindlessly. And we ought to seek to do this as many times as we have to. So it's more about being sincere and honest before God than it is to repeat words and things like that. And praise God that uh, in Romans 8.26, the Spirit helps us in our weakness in prayer. And he even intercedes for us. So we haven't been left alone for this. Again, these are just some points to guide us. Looking forward to more classes in the future. Um, Next week we'll begin um, with more regarding the discipline of prayer. Um, So I'll go ahead and end with that. Um, Let me go ahead and close out with prayer. Our Father, we thank you. We praise your name. Thanking you for, for the immense privilege of being able to come before you and before your throne and lay on you requests and burdens. This is a true sign of your love. That you would remove the walls of hostility that once stood between us and in Christ we can come before you boldly with our prayers. And more than anything, Father, we ask that you help us to pray. Help us to set apart time daily to be present before you so that our wills would conform to yours. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.